one of the three marks of existence in the way the Buddha speaks about things, that of impermanence, anicca in the Pali, the fact that things change. The Buddha spoke so often about the centrality of this insight, this understanding of the nature of conditioned existence, of the power, the freeing power of our uh, really coming to know this as a truth. I want to read you a couple of quotations from him. He said, he's talking to a monk, and he said, Bhikkhu, there is no form, no Vedna, no feeling tone, no perception, no volitional formation, no consciousness, that's the five aggregates that makes up a human being, none of any of those five that is permanent, stable, eternal, that is not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself. Then the Blessed One took up a little bit of dirt in his fingernail, tiny little bit of dirt in his fingernail, and he said, there's not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. Not even this little bit under my fingernail of all the form in the world. If there were this much form that were stable, eternal, not subject to change, that was permanent, then this living of the holy life where the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. It wouldn't be possible. But because there is not even this much form, and all the five aggregates, this much form, this much feeling, vedna, feeling tone, this much perception, mental formations, consciousness that is stable, that is permanent, then there is the living of this holy life for the complete destruction of suffering. It's a powerful statement. Not even that much that is unchanging, that is permanent. That's quite radical. huh? One other statement from him. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, that perception eliminates all sensual lust, it eliminates all lust for existence, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all conceit I am. That basically means a completely enlightened human being. Those are different ways of describing it. When the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated. I think that's a really interesting way to point to it, the perception of impermanence. Remember, perception, sanya in the Pali, is that Steve talked, I think it was Steve, anyway, is that recognition of what is. It's one of the five aggregates. It's arising in every moment of contact. It's just that, that simple recognition. When I do that, you hear the sound, bell just comes up in the mind. Perception. So the perception of impermanence. Why should that be? I mean, if impermanence is the way it is, and that's what he's telling us, why should we have to develop and cultivate the perception of it? Why don't we, if in fact we don't, really truly know 
in our guts, in our cells, however you want to put it. I like to think of it as knowing it cellularly. Why don't we? And if you think you do, is that how you live? Really knowing that there's not even this much under your fingernail of something that's stable and permanent? I think it's interesting. Of the three characteristics of... um, Anicca, of the fact of change, of dukkha, of the unreliability or sometimes suffering aspect, the, of non-self. Conceptually, intellectually, to me, the fact of impermanence, of anicca, is the easiest to comprehend. I mean, it's, it's not so abstruse, really, is it? It's not so abstract, is it? I mean, it's, it's not... We can get it with our mind. And probably, probably, we wouldn't really argue about the fact that things change. But when it comes to this level of perception, there's some way that we tend at times not to perceive the actuality of impermanence, but rather to perceive permanence and, and proceed then to construct our thoughts, our views, our lives, how we relate around this perception that things aren't really changing, at least not right now. At least, you know, somewhere in the future they'll change, but I don't have to worry about that yet. I mean, there's a huge amount of denial, which is not, necess- not necessarily conscious, Maybe in another talk I'll talk about denial fascinates me as a power of, of mind. I mean, it's amazing, but I won't go too much into it other than denial of impermanence, which is big enough in itself. The big picture, in, I mean, in some cultures it's not as much hidden as it is here. Big picture, I mean, life and death, the change of seasons, tides coming and going, stuff that we really were pretty clear on that these things happen that these changes happen, but still, when it actually happens to us or someone we're close to, it's this, wait, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. There's a kind of, at least I find in in the culture I grew up in, a denial, just a way that these big changes aren't, they're not really included as a natural, natural part of life. When I was in, I was in Burma teaching, uh, helping to teach a three-week retreat this January up uh, in Sagain, near Mandalay. And we were, it, it's a beautiful spot, the Chazwa Monastery, right uh, above the Irrawaddy River. And one day the other teachers and managers, there were five or six of us, were taking a walk along the river. And just down from the monastery, about a 5 minutes walk, there's a whole bunch of people gathered, maybe a hundred people up on the wall, looking down at the river, going down into the river. And there were some nuns from the, the next door nunnery that we're friends with, that we know. And they came running. Well, we went up and asked them what was going on. One of our friends is the translator, so he speaks fluent Burmese. And they said, well, four or five young novice monks, a lot of young boys, like from from age eight, nine or so up to the early teens, become novice monks. 
they live in monasteries. It's, for some of them, it's the only way they get to go to school. So there's a lot of them, and they're playing. And so several of them were playing down in the river. And one of them, who it turned out had only come to this town from far away a week ago, so he wasn't used to the river, had gone under and hadn't come back up. And so they, it had been quite a while, like an hour. So they were you know, all looking for him. So while we waited there, there's a small little nun in Yeti. She's like six years old now. And pink, they wear pink in Burma. She's so cute. She's the cutest nun in the world, man. So, she, so we've known her for a few years, right? So she recognized us and came running over because she was with some of the nuns that were there. And so she came running over and she was there too. Anyway, they found the boy, brought him up, and took him across the road to a big solace, like a big open-air kind of pavilion. And it had been an hour, pretty clearly he was dead. But they tried to revive him, couldn't. Then they had a bed, laid him on this really nice wooden bed, brought down clean cloths to lay him on, changed and put him in clean robes, covered him. And everyone sat there, was with him, chanting. And it was this very kind of natural part of life. Yeah, it was sad. People were upset. The little nun in Yechi, she was upset. She knew him. And then they came and got her and talked to her, and she was there too, and chanting. And, you know, his relatives, his family lived like 24 hours away, so someone was going to stay there with him all night, you know. Different people stayed. They took turns. And then they also noticed that the, young, the other young boys who had been playing with him, of course, had gotten scared and run away. So they worried about them, and they went off and looking for them because they knew they'd also be upset. And it was just this sense of, it's just as sad as it would be for anybody. It was really sad, but it was included as part of life. And I thought how here, if we pulled a young boy out, it had been an hour, and he was clearly dead, we would still have to call 911 and the sirens and the flashing and the police and whisking him off and all this stuff and don't let the little kids see and such a different vibe. Whereas actually the way that everyone stayed there uh, for the 24 hours taking turns and chanting was really beautiful. I mean, it was really beautiful. And the care and just the kind of naturalness. And one of our friends we were with said, you know, I'm 47 years old. I've never seen a dead person. And so that's, you know, for some people in our culture, that's, that's the truth. So I was just struck, you know, a bit with the difference and uh, just a way it could be more integrated. You know, it hasn't been integrated so much in my life. So that's kind of big picture. And there's, of course, you know, finer, 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 finer pictures, the immediacy of change, and I'll talk about that too. In my mind, I'm sure you can think of more, but in my mind, two, two, well, the ones I want to talk about tonight, two different supports, I would say, for our denial system, or for some of our denial system, come to mind that I want to speak about. One is, especially in big picture like this, kind of, for some of us, the instinctive fear or resistance or pulling back from sadness, that loss and death and change of things we love brings about, the sadness, the grief, or the sense that something's wrong, you know? Basically, 
It's back to the, the first noble truths you've talked about. You know, when things happen that we don't like, our instinctive sense is, this is wrong, how can I fix it? And if I get enlightened, then, you know, nothing wrong is ever going to happen anymore. And so just this kind of shrinking back and with, in a way of not quite even consciously recognizing somehow. It's a way of just not quite opening wholly to the fact of constant change. Or if we feel sorrow or sadness as if there's something wrong with us. And yes, from reading with the Buddha how he talks, if you're completely, completely, 100% knowing the truth of impermanence, our mind wouldn't cling. There wouldn't be that sadness. But still, we don't have to judge or hate or fear the sadness. That's also simply a part of life. In the suttas, in the stories of the Buddha, there's one place with Ananda who is so lovable, if you could use that word for uh, a monk who was the attendant of the Buddha for 25 years and quite austere. But he, was, he comes across as very human, very kind. And um, in a lot of the suttas, he's the person that we can project onto, oh, I could, I could imagine being like that. It kind of humanizes the suttas a little bit for me. So Ananda, who's been with the Buddha for 25 years, his devoted attendant, when the Buddha basically announces that he's going to die within three months, then he and Ananda get involved in a discussion about what to do with the funeral and stuff. And, and then Ananda kind of disappears. And uh, he went into his lodging and stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. Alas, I am still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away who is so compassionate to me. And he's basically leaning in the door crying, you know, my teacher's leaving, what am I going to do? And the Buddha, of course, with his all-knowing mind, inquired of the monks, where's Ananda? Of course, he knew, right? And so they told him, he said, you know, please tell him to come here. And then I says, friend Ananda, the Buddha summons you, so he comes and he says, Enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other? So how could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? So this is Ananda, who's been listening to the Buddha for 25 years, remembers every single one of his sermons by heart. So take heart. (laughs) It just goes so deep. So how? You can't leave me. What am I going to do? It's just part of our human nature. We don't need to flinch away from that sadness sometimes, that poignancy. We can open to it, and then it allows us also to see the truth. So the nature of insight, the perception of impermanence, actually all insight, really, it's not that with insight into impermanence, things change. It's not that things don't change until you have the perception of impermanence and then things start to change, right? It's already like that, right? It's like that right now. 
everything, there's not that little bit of dirt under their fingernail. It's already like that. It's not like if you start perceiving impermanence, everything's going to go on to chaos and you're not going to be able to function. It's already like that. It's so interesting that we kind of know it's too scary. I don't want to know that. It's going to like wreck everything. Actually, I mean, we're getting through life, but how well are we really functioning, you know, with our trying to hold on to things and imagining that stuff's permanent when it really isn't? So this shift in perception that happens, that's the insight, whether it's into impermanence or non-self or whatever, is just seeing things in a different way. It doesn't change how things are. You know, it's just like when you have a problem and you're trying to figure out and suddenly from left field something just, oh, could look at it that way. That's what it's like. Just a shift in perception. The actuality doesn't change. How we understand changes and thus how we relate to experience, to ourselves, to life. That's what changes dramatically. That's what affects liberation of mind and heart the way we relate to experience. We're spending all our time trying to get different experience, but we're still relating to it in the same way. We're just spinning in the same circle, right? So if you're spending your time trying to get to that one big blowout, peaceful or concentrated or empty or whatever you're looking for, experience, and somewhere unspoken way back there, there's the belief, we're pretending we don't have it, but we really do, that I'm going to get here and it's going to stay. It's always going to be like this. Then we're just functioning in the same old way. We just changed objects. But we're holding the possibility of permanence in that way. So looking at how we relate, that's what changes with our understanding. So looking at the perception of impermanence and the perception of permanence. Perception is really an interesting thing to look at, to explore. I find it fascinating. The Buddha spoke about inverted perceptions, distorted perceptions, vipalasa. It's like we see things upside down or backwards. So in terms of anicca, he says we tend to see the permanent in what is impermanent, right? That's the inverted or distorted perception. So we look at our whole life and think, well, we might give lip service to it's going to end, but the way we're really relating is I'm here now, I'm going to be here tomorrow, I have my day book for what I'm going to be doing. In fact, I've been working on the summer of 2008 this afternoon, you know, and writing it down and assuming it's going to happen, right? Perception of permanence. And he says the sanya, the inverted perception, and it can just be that quick, quick perception of permanence or anything else, that perception leads to citta, to thought. So if we perceive permanence, we tend to think in that way. And then the way we think leads to ditti, to view. So if we're seeing, if we're having the perception of permanence, then we'll think about the experience as if it's permanent. And then the view, the thoughts kind of harden into a view, like a belief we hold, which may not be that clear in our mind. This is how things are. 
And that can be in a really broad way. It can be like in politics. It can be your idea about your personality. It can, and it can be very subtle, like views of impermanence. So what, what our mind, we tend to interpret our perceptions and thoughts in what's familiar and then use those thoughts to describe ourselves in the world and then we believe that description. And what's so interesting of our perception is our mind will tend to just look for the familiar, for what it already knows. You know, it's, it doesn't really tend to like opening into the unknown every moment. So, for example, in perception, often, if there's not a ready recognition of what's going on, the mind just fills it in with what it knows. So our perception is quite often inaccurate. It's, it's fun to watch this on retreat. I was, when I was sitting in Burma just recently, there were most of the people there from many, many other countries. And, and it's a place where it's not dead silent, so there's a lot of talking. And I'd be like sitting in my room or walking outside, and I'd hear a whole conversation going on. It could be in the most likely languages were Korean, Vietnamese, Burmese, or Chinese. Those are the most likely languages, of which I understand not a word of any of them. And people would be going on, just talking, and all of a sudden I would hear a total sentence or phrase of perfect English, like in the middle of this conversation, you know, that, you know, really a very complex. And this happened over and over and over. And then I think, oh, it must be a couple of English speakers walking out there. I go look, and it wasn't, you know, it was two Vietnamese nuns that didn't know any English or the Korean. And then I'd realize they hadn't said anything in English. They said just some phrases and the perception just turned it into what my mind was familiar with, some English phrase. Well, let's go down to the meditation hall now. You know, something like that. <laughs> I mean, there's really all kinds of conflict. This happened over and over and over. And I really, it's not like I, I really heard that, right? I would swear that's exactly what I heard. We do this all the time. It's fascinating to see. Have you ever had a time, this happens to me a lot of you, I'll be sitting in the dining room here, And by now, it's almost time that without even really looking soon, if not now, you kind of have a sense of who everybody is. Just have a sense of their energy as they walk past or their feet or their clothes or you've run into them here or there. And if your mind is like mine, you have some little, you might not have a a name for everybody, but you have some little judgment going, you know. It's just what our mind does. So I'll be sitting there with my eyes closed and Someone comes and sits down near me, and I just know it's such and such a person, and my whole story, whatever my story is, good, bad, indifferent, starts with that person. I have the reactions that go with that story. I have the self-judgment that go with having those reactions to this poor person, just living their life. And then I open my eyes. The person I think it is is walking in at the other door. This person's a completely different person, had nothing to do with everything. And I would have sworn, you know, that, that I knew it was that person. So just play with the possibility. The perception leads to thoughts, leads to view. I know it's that person, and I know that my judgments about that person are accurate. I know, you know, blah, blah, blah. This, they did this, and that's what they were feeling, and that's what they meant by it, and this is what they should have done. You know, we, we believe all of that. All of us, all a hundred of us are running around making up stories like that and <laughs> believing it all from every perception. 
When I said we don't function, why do we tell you to be silent? Can you imagine if you're all talking to each other? Oh, what a nightmare. Every projection's just bouncing off each other. So, in terms of Anicca, one of the reasons, I heard the Dalai Lama giving a talk once, and he was talking about perception of impermanence, and he said, it's, it's hard enough, you know, we, to see impermanence, to really see that things begin and things end. Even that's hard enough for us. But we think once we see that, oh, there's, this arises, it lasts a while, it goes away, that's impermanence. But this is the trick about perception, that it lasts for a while in the minute, in the middle. No. There's no lasting for a while without changing. There's not even this amount of anything that's stable, that's permanent, that's unchanging. Lasts for a while? Nothing's lasting without changing from second to second. Now that's a level of perception of impermanence that can really start to shake up our worldview. And the idea of it isn't the same as perception of it, you know? I'm saying it now. It doesn't really make any difference, does it? You might you think whatever you think about what I'm saying. You might, and I'm saying it. But right now, my perception isn't really in that moment-to-moment level. It's not that it has to be all the time, though. But perceiving that subtlety, that radical nature of change, which is something that can happen at times on a meditation retreat. It can happen off of meditation retreat. It's not that we stay in this moment to moment, you don't know what's going on, how are you going to like function in the world if you can't recognize who you are from moment to moment. It's not like that. But the perception of that radical nature of change really shifts something in how we relate to ourselves in the world because we understand ourselves and the world differently. And when we really understand the radicalness of change, the clinging, the holding on to experience, to objects, to people, to ideas, for security, for self-fulfillment, for self-confirmation, when we really are getting it, that amount of change The holding on, it's not that we have to say stop, it just doesn't make any sense. Like trying to hold on to sand, you know, draining through, it doesn't make sense. So we stop trying. And instead of that being some horrible thing, it's like, oh, wow, what a lot of energy was going into trying to hold together this view of solidity when it wasn't necessary to do that at all. So freeing. Oh, it's like this. I know, that's easy to say. But what we can explore in retreat is the ways that we uphold and support our inverted perception. We can notice when we're perceiving permanence, when we're assuming permanence. And then that can begin to shift. That requires kind of a willingness 
to see, like what, what I was describing about with the language, how the tendency of mind, of perception, is to look for what it already knows. Have you noticed that in your practice? You have a new experience. Oh, emptiness. It's like this. The Dhamma, new view has been formed. Perception of emptiness, thoughts about it. It's like this. And then that's our idea of what we need to strive for. All freshness, all openness to the unknown in that moment is gone because now we know what emptiness or samadhi or mindfulness or clear comprehension or choiceless awareness or whatever the heck feels like, looks like, is like. And the impermanence, the fact of constant shifting, changing conditions, we're, we're not seeing that. We're assuming permanence. Nisargadatta Maharaj said, as long as you're interested in your present way of living, as long as you're holding on to it, you won't abandon it. Discovery cannot come as long as you cling to the familiar. When you have all sorts of ideas about yourself, you know yourself through the mist of these ideas. To know yourself as you are, give up all ideas. You cannot imagine the taste of pure water. You can only discover it by abandoning all flavorings. So that's what we're doing, exploring the flavorings in our mind and heart. Just seeing them, seeing them, and when we stop feeding them by holding on to them, they're abandoned. We don't, we don't have to abandon them. They just naturally drop away. And we can begin to discover things in a different way. The Buddha said over and over, it's kind of one of the refrains in many, many, many of his suttas when he's talking to someone, you know, and he'll say, well, you know, is, he would say, you know, the, the feelings change, this form change, just the whole litany I gave before, and because I'll say, yes, you know, it's impermanent. And he would then say, is what impermanent? Is that satisfying? Can that be seen as self? And they'd always say, no. He's basically saying whatever is impermanent is inherently unsatisfying. Whatever is impermanent cannot be seen or held to as me or mine. He says that over and over. And in the suttas, when he says that, everyone goes, oh, yes, that's right. You know, that, that's the truth. Yeah, they agree. Well, I just pause it as a question. I mean, I've put this to myself a lot. Do I even believe that? Really? Not on an intellectual level, because at this point, I mean, that's a start, because the intellectual helps us look. But in the level of how we're relating to experience, whatever is impermanent is inherently unsatisfying, not worth clinging to as mere mind. Do we, never mind if we really know that, do we even believe that? Just look and see if it ever, ever happens in your experience, that something you really like goes away, and it's really gone away. And you cling to it, and you want it to come back. Does that ever happen in your experience? Because we're still not getting it, you know? You're still so, just look and see. It's not that this is, we're bad or stupid. It's not about judgment. Just about seeing where's the suffering in that scenario. 
Is there suffering in that scenario? First of all, if you don't think there's suffering, you like doing that. There's certainly no motivation to look more carefully. If we don't look carefully, we think the suffering is that thing went away, and if I can get it back, I'll be okay. If we think that's the suffering, then we're motivated to keep clinging, to keep trying to get the thing back. If we really have the perception over and over, oh, whatever arises in my experience is going to go away, and probably sooner rather than later, whatever, no exception whatsoever, Does that actually bring us the... I mean, that's a fearful thought often when it first comes up, or a fearful experience. But really, deeply seen, does that perception bring fear and sorrow? Or does it bring a real freedom, an ease, an ability to be really here now, open to whatever might arise next? The real possibility of living a life that's so vibrant, so appreciative, so present. The Buddha said, the search for a resting place is burning, burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. Not to need a resting place is cool and peaceful. Ajahn Chah said in his one of his books. He's talking about worldly knowledge and accomplishments. So whatever worldly knowledge and accomplishments you have still leave you in this realm of suffering. Whatever happiness there may be, and there is happiness, sure, it comes about in dependence on external things. It's not the happiness of freedom, the happiness that does not depend on anything. What is it we depend on? We depend on possessions, on pleasure, on reputation, on praise, on wealth. We lean on all these things, like leaning on a rotting old tree trunk. After we lean for too long, it breaks and falls, and we fall with it. Such is worldly happiness. I just love that image somehow. Breaks and falls, and we fall with it. And he's talking about external things. But here in our meditative experience, we can have that same kind of trying to hold, trying to find a resting place with internal experiences, with beautiful meditative experiences. And there can be that same habit of leaning on, maybe it doesn't feel like it's a rotting old tree trunk, it feels like it's an incredibly beautiful, flowering, blissful, golden tree. We're still leaning on it and they can still fall. There's another sutta, I'm into the suttas tonight, where, again, even a very accomplished, awakened monk still got caught in this, in this clinging, in this not really seeing how things change. It's just, I think, I find this inspiring, that <laughs> it still happens with these monks, because it just says, yeah, okay, we expect so much so soon, you know, so easy not to have the patience for appreciating the depth and subtlety of our habits of mind, of our habit of perceiving permanence, for example, of assuming permanence. That's a really deeply ingrained habit. So have a little compassion for ourselves 
you know, some patience. Anyway, this is a monk named Asaji, and he was, he was very sick. In fact, he was about dying, and he wanted to see the Buddha. And the Buddha came to see him. He said, well, are you getting better? Are you bearing up? And he said, no, I'm not getting better. Basically, he was dying. And the Buddha said, well, I hope you're not troubled by any remorse or regret. And he said, actually, I have a lot of remorse and regret. And the Buddha said, well, I hope it's not in regard to any of your actions and to virtue. You know, I hope you haven't done something horrible. I said, no, no, no remorse about my actions, about my virtue. And the Buddha said, well, then, if you have nothing to reproach yourself with, why are you troubled by remorse and regret? And he said, I'm going to paraphrase. He said, formally, Venerable Sir, when I was really ill, I could keep on tranquilizing. He could attain deep concentration when he was ill tranquilize the body formations, tranquilize the mind, and now I can't do that. So before, even when he was sick, he could get this deep concentration. Now he can't do it, and he's really filled with regret, remorse, with fear. Let me not fall away. I cannot obtain concentration. Let me not fall away. Basically, let me not lose the Dhamma. And he's really scared about this. Again, (laughs) the Buddha says, you know, first he says, Asaji, you know, to regard concentration as the essence of the ascetic life is not accurate. You know, that is not what I'm teaching as the essence of our holy life. It's about insight. It's about freedom. And then he says, what do you think, Asaji? Is form permanent or impermanent? You know, (laughs) is uh, the mind, is consciousness permanent or impermanent? You know, therefore, basically he's saying, look, The conditions have changed. Your consciousness is impermanent. Your body is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. Yes, the conditions are different, and now you can obtain concentration. So what? That's not what freedom is about. And this was, of course, when he became an arhat just before he died. (laughs) Always happens like that. So maybe if we're lucky, we'll have a Buddha come to us and just say. But again, just to show with someone who is a very sincere, well-practiced monk, that fear can come up. Oh my God, I've lost this state. What am I going to do? Equating that state with the Dhamma. Equating it with freedom. You get the sense that everything changes is so radical that there's nothing, nothing to hold on to. Not even, not even that really beautiful state of emptiness, not even that free-flowing, choiceless awareness, not even the way I feel when I'm really understanding impermanence. That's going to go away, you know? Can we really get it that not to need a resting place is cool and peaceful? Just don't try to hold on to that understanding, but we just <laughs> let it go through. Let it go through. It's in the not holding on that the ease and freedom is discernible. But there's not a me there to appreciate it. Huh? That's the thing. So, the Buddha says to cultivate and develop the perception of anicca. I just want to say, a couple of hints. 
my mind goes in two directions when I when I give hints like this, because they're just meant as at times when it's appropriate, when this is what's being kind of coming up in your experience. Maybe the hint will just help to, you know, to help us notice. But sometimes impermanence isn't the thing that's showing up. So if you all go out of here going, now, by golly, I'm going to see the beginnings and the endings of everything, and, you know, please don't do that. <laughs> like, you'll be twisted in a knot in no time, you know. Just like when we talk about uh, Vedna or intentions, and we say sometimes that's not the obvious thing. So this, these hints are like just to put back there in, in the intelligence, in the attitude that we bring to our mindfulness practice. But in a moment of mindfulness, we let go of all referencing and just completely open with full attention into the actuality of the experience. Don't try to put an overlay of impermanence or an overlay of anatta or an overlay of anything because that's just thinking. Does that make sense? Do you know, do you know what I mean? So, okay, to the hints. Mindfulness versus confusing our concepts for mindfulness, right? So just the simplicity, what I just said, that simplicity of attention that simply meets what's happening just as it is. A simple sensation, burning, versus, I always use the versus, the pain in my back that's been here since the beginning of the retreat. You see how we do that? Oh, it's 40 more minutes in this sitting. How am I going to get through this sitting? with this pain. Is that a familiar thought? That's just a thought. That doesn't have to be assuming permanence. If you see that's just a thought, and that thought is now gone. But do you see how easy it is for us to take that thought, this pain in my knee or my back, and 40 more minutes in the sitting adds up to a whole lot of dukkha for 40 more minutes. That's taking the concept. The reality is, oh, Burning, thinking, fear. Just noticing fear feels like this. Thinking is like this. Burning is like this. She says it's like this. I can't do that. That so is like this. There's really no way you can get away from it because whatever it is, struggle is like this. And each of those is a new experience arising. If we just have that simplicity of mindfulness, we see each one as a new experience as arising. When we're caught in the concept, all of that is bundled up into one big mass of dukkha, which is about my back hurts and this sitting has 40 more minutes to go. And in fact, that was about 10 different things coming and going. And that can be in less than a minute. Incredible change. Incredible impermanence. One thing that masks anicca, that hides anicca, in our time here is as... as diligent as you all are in really noticing moment to moment the sitting and the walking and through the day. We, all of us, well, I shouldn't say all of us. I have a friend who really gets on my case whenever I say all or nothing, but many of us at least have some moments in the day when you're not totally mindful. Could I say that? (laughs) Could I fairly say that that might be true for some people sometimes? Sometimes the gaps are bigger than others. Well, one of the reasons we encourage the continuity, not heavy continuity, but just that willingness to be here, to show up moment after moment, is the lack of continuity of awareness hides impermanence. We assume, how often, say there's a big kind of emotional knot of 
loneliness or grief or feeling abandoned and it comes up and you're really with it and you're feeling it. Then the bell rings for lunch. Oh, I wonder what's for lunch. And you go to lunch and you're going through all of that and you come back to the next sitting. Oh, here we are again. And this not, you know, and this is really quite my day's work, at least, if not my lifetime. I reckon this is my life. This is the core of who I am. We're totally assuming, okay, maybe not totally, but pretty lot assuming permanence. And, And I've talked to a lot of people in interviews where I'll say, did you notice it was, really wasn't there at lunch? Well, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it because I was eating, but, yeah, you're laughing because you know what I'm going to say, right? It's there underneath. It just wasn't what I was paying attention to at that time. But I, you know, and isn't it often a belief you have this core of, like this pile of whatever you have in there, loneliness or greed or trauma or sadness and... You know, when we talk about purification, well, every time it comes up, maybe a little chip of it's purified away, but there's this big glob of it sitting there, and I've got to work it all out. And even when it's not there, we think it's there. So I would like you to really notice when things are gone. Not, oh, I'm not aware of it, but I know it's under there. That's, you know, perception of permanence leading to chitta, to view, to thought of permanence leading to a view, I have to work out all this loneliness. Really notice the goneness of things. Beautiful things, difficult things, neutral things. You may not notice the moment it ends, that's okay. But what we tend to do is jump into getting involved with the next object or the next experience. So say you have a train of thought, oh, finally it ends. Thank God, let's get back to the breath. Just notice for a second the space before the next thought, before the next thing. You don't have to jump to fill it up. Something will come. You don't have to do anything. Something will come quick. But just notice that one is over. This This sounds silly, but somehow this was a big insight for me. I was eating on a retreat, kind of mindfully chewing, 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 and swallowed, chewing. And as I swallowed, I saw that what I usually do is I feel the sensations going down my throat. I can really track it. And so that's the food going down my throat. But this time, I was really chewing and swallowed, and it was in my mouth, and it was like, it was really gone. I mean, the food was gone. It wasn't there anymore. (laughs) It was really totally gone. (laughs) And there are sensations here, but that wasn't the food in my mouth. That was sensations here, and the idea that it was was just an idea. You know what I mean? And I was just, it's really totally gone. So notice that. Notice that with your knee pain. When it goes away, and you say, well, I didn't notice it for that moment, but now it's back. But it was really gone. Just notice. And for that, the simplicity of continuity is what really allows us to see that. Sometimes with something difficult, we're afraid to look and notice it's gone because we think, you know, kind of that's bad luck. It's going to make it come back. <laughs> but just notice. Loneliness isn't here. What's here is hunger. You know? I'm not feeling abandoned. What's here is real annoyance at that person who's doing, you know, X, Y, and Z across the room. So just pay attention. Notice how, another way is to notice how changing conditions really change things. Like with Asaji. 
He was really sick. He was dying, and he expected to have the same concentration he had other times. You know? Duh! The same thing happens here. So some days the energy's not so good. Some days the weather changes. You'd be amazed. Maybe you wouldn't, but how much the weather seems to affect us. When, you know, we have, like, nice days and then suddenly it gets really stormy and oppressive, it's really kind of amazing how, not everyone, but quite a percentage of the yogis that come in are cranky or tired, you know, and we take it all personally, what's the matter with me? It's just the weather. You know, we're not really separate from the weather. It changes. We think we can hold on and keep it the same. So, they say notice when things are over. Also notice when something new is beginning. That's also changed. And then you might also notice how we assume permanence, which I've been you know, giving examples of, like assuming into 2008, assuming that this pain is going to last the whole sitting, assuming that anything that's happening now is going to be happening in the next sitting. Never mind assuming that you finally got it right and so now your next sitting is going to be like this sitting and it's just going to keep on going like that, right? And then when it isn't like that, you think you did something wrong. That's a complete assumption, denying cause and effect, denying the fact that all the causes and all the conditions are changing. How can it stay the same all the time? It's actually more amazing when your sittings are similar than when they're different. Just notice, that's all, the assumption of permanence. When we assume we have any clue what's going to happen in the next moment, we're assuming permanence. It's actually amazing to me that so much of the plans we make actually do happen. You know, that I did, two years ago, plan that this summer I would be in Switzerland and Holland and here and there, and it really happened. And you send someone an email and they meet you at the airport at the right time. I mean, that's amazing. And everyone's still alive to do it. And I mean, the plane kind of went on time. They didn't change their schedule. And that, that airline still exists. And I mean... <laughs> There's just so many different conditions that could change. It's amazing. So that's part of what, you know, lulls us into thinking things don't change. So just to have that sense, why would we want to cultivate this perception of radical, constant change? That there's nowhere to rest? That the search for a resting place is burning? I mean, that could be a valid question. Why do I want to look at life this way? I mean, obviously I would say because the other way doesn't really work, but you have to see if that's true for you. Why would we want to perceive this radical instability in ourselves, in others, in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our bodies, in conditions, in life? You know, the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace which has been discovered by him, by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. The supreme state of sublime peace, resting at ease in whatever arises. So we're not looking for a resting place, but each moment, each arising experience is the resting place because we don't need to look for something other or something to stay. So this sense of opening to the perception of impermanence. My experience in the times that I'm really in tune with it, when that clinging 
isn't happening so strongly in the mind and the heart. It opens our heart, our mind, our consciousness, just opens it to a kind of vitality of presence here and now. This looking to something to confirm ourselves, to give us a steadiness, to feel safe, it constricts the mind, it constricts the heart. It limits us. It's what breeds fear. It's what breeds needing to know control. One or two of you have mentioned a little bit of a struggle with wanting to control everything. It's dukkha. It doesn't work. I mean, we were never in control. See, that's the thing. You're so afraid of losing control. You don't have any control. None of us has control. Why are we beating ourselves up at the thought of losing it? This is one of the mysteries, the paradox to me of the spiritual life. But the supreme state of sublime peace, just that letting go even for a moment of of needing to restrict ourselves to the known, of clinging to something for security, of needing something to stay the same, to feel comfortable. And I'm a big comfort walla. You know, I like to be comfortable. Our idea of constant change isn't comfort. But resting at ease in whatever arises, it allows us to meet whatever's happening now with a a fullness of presence, a vitality, a tenderness, an appreciation that is so different from this kind of, is this going to mess up the boat? Is this going to, you know, I've got everything carefully arranged. Is this going to mess it up? Oh, what's happening now? A kind of a, a flexibility is possible in our response to others, in our response to life, because we're really able to not drag the past with us, but really be here for whatever moments are rising now. This is not only in meditation, but in in regular life. uh, I read a biography of Isan Dorsey. You know, he was a Zen master in San Francisco in the 80s. And... uh, he started a Zendo, I think it was in the Castro district, but really in the, in, at the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic in the late 80s when in that area of San Francisco so, so many gay guys were dying. He was a, he was a gay guy too who had AIDS. And he started uh, a Zendo there with no big plans but just being very responsive to how, how things happened as they happened. And so it ended up that their zendo turned into a hospice. But he says here that it wasn't any plan that they had. He says, we dealt with whatever came to the door. We started the hospice because death came to the door. You can deal with a complex, changing situation because, because you don't have to control it. You don't have to force it into an ideal pattern. You can actually allow it to be whatever it is and allow yourself to adapt to what it becomes. Because this is the way we proceed, we respond to the immediacy of the situation, and therefore we end up being very practical. You get a, a sense of that. It can be in a more complex situation like that, as Endo turning into a hospice, just because of that, that presence, that immediacy with what's showing up right now, that allows for the ceaseless responsiveness, the way the Tibetans talk about manifestation of the emptiness of heart and mind, ceaselessly responsive 
because we're not holding to some preconceived notion. That can be in a complex situation like starting a hospice. That can simply be in the way you, you meet the next moment of your experience in the sitting, in the walking, as you go outside. It's a kind of a, an opening into the unknown that really frees our heart and mind from fear, from clinging. It's not that we have to uproot clinging, but clinging just doesn't make sense when we're really perceiving this fact of constant change, how much things shift. Clinging just keeps us from being totally present here and now. And that sense of appreciation, of surrender into the immediacy of life, it just, you know, it's so, I don't know, poignant, lovely, peaceful, whatever it is for you. You all know those moments when there's just no reference to past or future. And there's just no reference to how it should be or what does this mean about me. There's just that simplicity of total presence without clinging, resting at ease in whatever arises. And it doesn't really matter what it is that arises in that moment. Resting at ease and then it's gone and resting at ease in the next moment. That's really the gift of the perception of anicca, the perception of impermanence. So far from being a fearful, you know, destructive perception, it just opens our minds, our hearts, our lives to so much more sensitivity and so much more appreciation What's possible. I'll just end with this one line from Nisargadatta Maharaj. He says, Be quiet, free from the obsession with what next. In the silence, something may be heard which is ordinarily too fine and subtle for perception. So just be quiet, free from the obsession with what next. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by Carol Wilson at Insight Meditation Society on October 22, 2006. It is an offering of the dark.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.